Radio 4 presents the Mark Steele Lectures, a series of lectures on people with a passion. Tonight, Che Guevara. What do most of us know about Che Guevara? There's a mark of how seriously the West takes South America, I think, that one of the only political figures from the place that we know the name of at all was the wife of a dictator and she was the name of a bloody musical. <laughs> Give it a few years, there'll be another West End show by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Ben Elton called Pinochet on Ice. <laughs> in 1928, Argentina was becoming this modern industrial nation, but it still retained all these old political structures dominated by the big landowning families. Workers had almost no rights, leprosy was rife, and many areas were still ruled by vigilantes. In that year, 1928, a child was born, Ernesto Guevara, although later his friends would shape history by giving him the name Shay, uh, which is an Argentinian word meaning mate or pal. You could never have anybody comparable in this country, could you? Because you couldn't have a cult hero called Mush. <laughs> there was something else as well about Shay's early years that shaped his character, which was that he was a chronic asthmatic. Some days he couldn't move at all. One attack very nearly killed him. His family tried every remedy, including making him sleep with a stray cat. And on the night that he lost his virginity to a woman called Cabrera, he had to stop halfway through to take puffs on his inhaler. <laughs> now, given that most people in small-town Argentina had probably never seen an inhaler, when he leant across to pick that up, the poor girl must have thought, Oh, my God, what's he going to do with that? <laughs> He planned uh, all sorts of money-making schemes. He tried to invent a powder for killing cockroaches. He collected hundreds of individual shoes and tried to sell the ones that most resembled a pear. <laughs> and so, in this fashion, he seemed to go on until he took to travelling with his mate Alberto through South and Central America on a bike called La Ponderosa, which means the power. And Shea kept a record of his journey, which became known as the Motorcycle Diaries. They look like a typical account of a laddish student. He gets drunk and fails to get off with women. They stay in a farmhouse where they shoot a wild puma that growls at them before then realising that they've killed the owner's dog by mistake. <laughs> he enrolls as a firefighter in Chile but sleeps through the alarm and misses a fire. <laughs> the Motorcycle Diaries is a story of lads on the road, but of a certain type. See, at one point, Guevara gets a job as a doctor in the Chilean town of La Giaconda, and he writes about the plight of some of his patients. I went to see an old woman with asthma. The smell of stale sweat filled her room, mixed with the dust from a couple of armchairs, the only luxuries in her house. Now, at one level, you could ask, what is he complaining about? He's a doctor. He shouldn't be surprised if the people he visits are ill. <laughs> that is showing real inexperience as a doctor, isn't it? If every time you visit a patient you go, oh, don't tell me you've gone down with something as well. <laughs> well, there must be something going round, I suppose. Bye. <laughs> but Guevara's reason for mentioning her isn't just her illness. He wrote, In circumstances like this, a doctor longs for a change that would prevent the injustice of a system in which this poor old woman had had to earn her living as a waitress wheezing and panting, but facing life with dignity. And his ideas were developing, which is why for his next trip he went to Guatemala. Now, in 1953, the whole of Central America was virtually a colony of the United States. So each nation was run by a dictator who answered more or less to the White House. The one exception was Guatemala, whose leader, Jacobo Arbenz, nationalised the fruit industry and installed trade union rights. And the place developed this liberal air and attracted exiles from the rest of Central America, including Guevara. And while there, 
He met Hilda Gadea, an American activist who introduced him to a circle of revolutionaries, and they spent evenings together reading Mao, Sartre, and Freud, and they fell in love. Though it's hard to imagine reading Mao being very romantic. <laughs> Political power derives from the barrel of a gun. <laughs> but the defiant atmosphere that fueled this love wasn't to last. The Americans announced that in Guatemala, democracy is unrealistic. So they prepared to bomb Guatemala and install as the new leader a furniture salesman called Castillo Armas. And as the air raids began, Guevara wrote to his mother, I'm having as much fun as a monkey. <laughs> he's being bombed, he's having as much fun as a monkey. Most people in those circumstances would just be going, we should have gone to Bournemouth. <laughs> Fancy writing this to your mum? If she was like most mums, proper mums this is, who still mop your mouth with a napkin when you're 26, not like these silly modern mums who smoke dope and go to Thailand. <laughs> proper mums think that abroad is just this one big giant country full of danger. But when I was a kid, if someone we vaguely knew was out in New York somewhere, and then there was an item on the news about a riot in Mexico, my mum would go, oh my goodness, I hope Terry and Sandra's boy is all right, because he's out there somewhere. <laughs> Guevara's excitement was a result of his belief that the Guatemalan government was going to arm the population and defeat the Americans. But within a few days, Arbenz surrendered in humiliation, and the new president was the furniture salesman. Union rights were abolished, dozens of striking dockers were shot, the Americans were back in charge of United Fruit, and anyone associated with the opposition was put under arrest, including Guevara and Hilda. Some concluded the mistake was trying to be radical in the first place, and others, like Guevara, concluded that Arbenz hadn't been radical enough. He began to develop the idea that a group of people should be assembled who would be prepared to start a war against dictatorial governments, and, if necessary, against America. Shortly afterwards, he was staying at a house in Mexico when militants who'd been expelled from Cuba arrived, and the first batch included Raul Castro, and then came his brother Fidel. Guevara's girlfriend Hilda asked Fidel why he was in Mexico, and Fidel replied with a four-hour monologue. <laughs> four hours at a social gathering, and they put up with it! You can understand it if they were English. <laughs> Uh, the means towards the emancipation of our agricultural brethren is to... We can't just leave, darling. He's still going on. <laughs> Look, he must be finishing soon. It's been an hour and three quarters. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, look, Mr Castro, um, I don't mean to be rude, but um, it's the babysitter, you see. Goat milk. But this is what he's been like for 45 years, magnificent, making speeches that go on for four, five, six, seven hours. I wonder if when he gets to 90 he'll go, anyway, that's enough about me. <laughs> now let's talk about you. <laughs> the regime that the Castros were exiled from was run by Fulgencio Batista. It thrived on one major industry, corruption. <coughs> One third of all payments for public works in Cuba were handed back to Batista. There were 10,000 pimps. The owner of the largest newspaper was Amadio Balletta, who'd been a member of Mussolini's general council. In the evenings, Batista spent his time cheating at cards, and in the afternoons, he would watch Dracula movies. Although that seems quite human in a political leader, doesn't it? <laughs> See, this is why people are disappointed with Prescott. They thought he'd end up like that. Have you any comment on the budget statement, Mr Prescott? Oh, blimey, I forgot all about it. I've been watching Vampire Virgins all afternoon. <laughs> uh, 
Castro had a plan for a rising, which would be organised by training a crack squad of rebels based entirely among the people of the countryside. Now, this seems a little hard to grasp when you're British, because we don't always associate the countryside with the most revolutionary sections of society. <laughs> it's hard to imagine people from Suffolk going, well, you've got to smash the states, eh? <laughs> Well, I mean, if you don't seize control of the means of production, it'll be a rum old dude. <laughs> Castro's plan appealed to Guevara in that it didn't involve waiting for a revolution or even trying to stir up a revolution, but going straight ahead and doing it, even if there's only a handful of you. But also, throughout Guevara's youth, as the frustration and anger had been brewing inside him, anti-colonial movements had been developing all around the world. They were mobilising millions in India, Egypt, Algeria, Tanzania, Ghana, Jamaica and Vietnam. And one by one, these movements were winning. Castro's offer must have seemed enormously exciting to a newly converted activist as an offer to help lead the Cuban version of this global movement. The plan to take over Cuba was a classic left-wing activist fiasco. The sort that makes lefties wish that the other side was as badly organised. So at demonstrations, police chiefs were going, Oh no, the sergeant's locked the truncheons in the boot of the panda. <laughs> 82 rebels set out on a boat bought by Castro called the Grandma. <laughs> In Guevara's account of the boat journey to Cuba, he wrote, We had very bad weather. We sang the Cuban national anthem for five minutes total, then began a frantic search for antihistamines for seasickness and could not find them. <laughs> Men with anguished faces were holding their stomachs, some with their heads in buckets, and others lying immobile on the deck in the strangest positions with their clothing soiled by vomit. <laughs> Wouldn't have become such an icon if that pose had got on the posters, would it? <laughs> Fist in the air, head between his legs over a bucket. <laughs> then they got lost for two days, and as they finally approached their landing spot, they walked round and round in circles, following one of the crew who said he knew the way. <laughs> so the Cuban Air Force spotted the rebels and they attacked them. Guevara was shot, but eventually was one of 22 survivors, and he referred to his thoughts afterwards. During the battle, I felt a need to live. This is a weakness I must correct. <laughs> so he set off into the forest with the aim of overthrowing the government, although there were now only 22 of them. The method was to train the group in hit-and-run raids on barracks and remote government buildings, collecting food and ammunition as they went. The guerrilla army was becoming more efficient and more ruthless, especially Shay. When it was discovered that one of their group, Eutimio, had been collaborating with the enemy, there was confusion about what to do, until, as Shea wrote in his diary, I ended the problem giving him a shot with a .32 calibre pistol in the right side of the brain with exit orifice in the right temporal lobe. It was wet that night and I had asthma. <laughs> See, this is why I know I could never be a gorilla. If I ever shot someone through the head, I wouldn't then lie down and think, Oh, I wish I could get rid of this chesty cough. <laughs> Shay's unit retreated into the mountains from where they made frequent raids, winning the respect of the peasants, as they proved themselves capable of inflicting defeats on the government. And part of the reason for this support was their promise to hand over land once they took power. And eventually around 3,000 peasants joined the rebel army. The old regime, ruled by Batista, had few supporters and there were no institutions prepared to take over in his place. The church was weak and the only official opposition party was discredited because their leader had had his own radio show. But one week, at the end of the programme, he shot himself. <laughs> I hope Cuban radio was as unflappable as Radio 4, because then you'd have just heard... That was the last programme in the series <laughs> by the leader of the opposition. <laughs> 
So, on the 1st of January 1959, a few thousand rebels marched into Havana and Batista and the Mafia fled. And on this day, Errol Flynn had been sailing his ship through the Caribbean Sea. Now, when he heard about Shea and Castro's victory, he sailed to Havana and climbed onto a balcony with Cuba's new leaders. Now, see, this is one of the things that gives the Cuban Revolution such a cool image. Day of Liberation, Errol Flynn arrives. <laughs> if a similar thing happened in Britain, we'd get Blakey from on the buses going, Oi, aren't you, Batista? <laughs> At first, the Americans weren't too worried. Castro even appeared as a guest on the Ed Sullivan Show. See, people moan about America, but if he was in this country, the poor bloke would have ended up talking to Dale Winton before the draw of the National Lottery. <laughs> so, you've taken over Cuba. I've heard it's lovely there. I'm jealous. <laughs> now tell me, have you got a message for the world? My message is to take heart from what we have achieved. I and my compatriots wish to build a new Cuba, a land of freedom, of security and of peace. Well, that's lovely. <laughs> anyway, we love the beard, don't we, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> Now, if you'd just like to press the button, we can reveal this week's lucky numbers. Are you excited? I know I am. Shea was made foreign minister, which wasn't bad as he'd only set out on a motorcycle in holiday. But one of his problems was dealing with his family. His parents turned up. So while Shea was trying to rebuild this country, his mum and dad stayed at a nearby hotel in Havana. And Shea's dad was a classic dad. One of the first things he said to Shea was... So... What are you going to do with your medical career now? <laughs> Even more complicated, while running his base in the mountains, he'd met a peasant woman called Elida, who was carrying out special missions for the guerrillas. She referred to herself as middle class, because she was brought up on a farm with a concrete floor, and all her friends had dirt floors. Now that shows you how poor the place must have been, really, doesn't it? Presumably these friends would go round her house and go, Ooh! Mud's not good enough for you, Mrs. Lardy Dar Concrete Floor. <laughs> Shay and Elida became an item, but once the rebels were in power, his wife Hilda turned up, expecting to continue their marriage. Uh, Shay, who had lived in a swamp, faced countless gun battles, and felt he had to correct his need to live, was so terrified that he sent his mate to meet her at the airport. <laughs> The new government was hugely popular. Students were sent into the villages to teach the peasants how to read, which almost eliminated illiteracy within a year. And the leaders were brilliant at winding up the Americans. When Fidel was invited to the United Nations Assembly in New York, he refused to stay in his allotted hotel and stayed instead in a run-down area of Harlem as an act of solidarity with black civil rights. Now, acts like this began to annoy the Americans, and then Castro nationalised the oil. So America refused to buy any more Cuban sugar, and Cuba retaliated by arranging a loan from communist Russia. Now, Castro had always stated his dislike for communism. He just saw the loan as a necessity, whereas Shea sometimes called himself a Marxist, which is why the CIA kept a file on him, containing information such as, Shea is fairly intellectual, for a Latino. <laughs> Unlike the Americans, of course, who were all universal geniuses like Ronald Reagan and Mike Tyson. And half the population going, anybody tell me to believe in this evolution, fairest star, I'm going to shoot them up the ass. <laughs> and about Cubans in general, they said, Communist Cuba is something of a paradox, as Cubans, far from submitting to discipline, prefer to idle in the sun or to dance to their native rhythms. The CIA must have been getting their information off a bloke in a pub in Kent. <laughs> there was probably one that went, Whereas, uh, you're Mexicans, right? Well, uh... 
Well, they drink tequila, don't they? And they uh, wear sombreros and they go, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, a gringo. Following Cuba's nationalisation of oil and land, the US broke off relations. And a few months later, anti-Castro groups backed by the Americans burnt down the largest department store in Havana. The next morning, a bombing raid started that must have appeared to Shea almost identical to the one he saw in Guatemala. Though luckily, it matured since then, as it wouldn't have been reassuring for the Cuban population if he'd gone on television to make one of those presidential-type addresses and said, these are grave times. But I'm as happy as a monkey! <laughs> Instead, he went to the west of the island, 90 miles from the coast of America, to organise the defence. 1,500 US soldiers arrived in boats at the Playa Giron, which Americans called the Bay of Pigs, and they all got stuck in a swamp. They radioed for reinforcements, but none arrived, and they were either shot or taken prisoner. The Americans were humiliated, but the Cubans decided that their best defence for the future was to become an official ally of Russia. Castro announced... Now the communist nature of our revolution has been revealed. So now the Americans adopted a different approach. They worked out a plan to undermine Castro's authority by putting thallium salts in his shoes to make his beard fall out. <laughs> Even if this had worked, would Cubans then have gone, oh, I'm not following him anymore. His beard's fallen out. Now I'm going to follow John F. Kennedy. He might have just tried to bomb us, but at least he's never had a beard, and consistency in your facial hair policy is the most important thing. The Americans offered a $150,000 reward for the assassination of Castro and $120,000 for Shea. Fabian Escalante, former head of Cuban state security, documented 612 plots against Fidel over a 35-year period. These include a plan to brush past him with a poisoned fountain pen <laughs> and a plot to bribe his bodyguard to give him an exploding cigar. <laughs> The CIA got information that Castro was a skin-diving enthusiast. The chief of the SAS originated a scheme for doing away with Castro by means of an explosives-rigged seashell. The idea was to take an unusually spectacular seashell that would be certain to catch Castro's eye, <laughs> load it with an explosive, triggered to blow when the shell was lifted, and submerge it in an area where Castro often went skin-diving. <laughs> I get the impression that American foreign policy was being determined by the wily coyote. <laughs> the most serious breakdown in relations, though, came when the Russians started shipping atomic weapons onto Cuba in a submarine. Kennedy ordered a naval blockade, and then the Russians insisted on installing the weapons anyway and aiming them at America. As the row became public, the world's population sweated in terror that the big one was about to go off. The Americans stood firm with their naval blockade, so the Russians backed off and removed the missiles. The most extraordinary thing, though, about Shea at this point, he was the joint leader, really, of a Cuban national liberation movement, but he was one of the most un-Cuban people imaginable. He didn't drink, he didn't dance, his favourite method of relaxation was doing maths, and he wrote a series of letters to the national paper complaining that the chess puzzles were too easy. <laughs> It was also unique in leaders of national liberation movements in that he didn't come from the country that he was liberating. Shea was brought up in Argentina, where he was hardly likely to feel frustrated at not being allowed to run Cuba. <laughs> that would be a very strange twist on national liberation movements, the demand that each nation should be free to determine the affairs of the next country along. <laughs> be a novel solution to the Irish problem, though, wouldn't it? You're still run by Britain, but you get to run Iceland. <laughs> 
maybe this explains why he didn't follow the same path as those other leaders once they took power, because Shea stayed as stroppy in office as when he was a rebel. But Shea was frustrated. Firstly, Cuba needed international allies beyond Russia, which required a Cuba-style revolution in another country. But secondly, as he toured the world meeting leaders of other ex-colonies, he was itching to get out and start another revolution. And in the end, he decided on the Congo. A war of independence had been thwarted when the Belgians, who ruled the Congo, along with mercenaries, killed 30,000 people. So in 1965, Shea arranged to restart the war along with a tiny band of colleagues. No one, not even those he went with, were to know who he was. He had his face altered by a doctor, he had false lips made, and he shaved his beard off. Then he went to the Belgian Congo to form a group of about 40 rebels and start all over again overthrowing the government. To start with, his initial briefing with his troops didn't go to plan. He wrote in his diary, Lieutenant Colonel Lambert explained to me that they weren't worried about enemy planes because they possessed Dawa, a medicine that made them immune to bullets. <laughs> and their first battle was a fiasco in which four of his soldiers were killed, after which the rest of the army blamed the witch doctor for supplying bad Dawa. <laughs> When they did raid the barracks, the guerrillas found a crate of whiskey and got paralytic. And then when after several weeks they somehow made it to the town of Lalimba that they'd been heading for, according to Shay's diary, We kept walking and didn't find anybody. Until we realised the town we'd called Lalimba wasn't Lalimba at all. <laughs> he must have been furious, must he? I bet he leaned over to the chief tribesman shouting, Give me that map! The farce of the expedition was only matched by the CIA's efforts to find out where Shay was. A report of the 1st of June 1965 said, We can be certain he is either in A, Vietnam, B, Algeria, or C, Latin America. <laughs> Eventually Fidel made a speech explaining the disappearance of Shay, saying that the most beloved son of Cuba had gone to fight for the cause elsewhere, but was alive and in good health. The affection between the two men was enormous. Shea ended one letter to Fidel from Africa. We will reflect honour on Cuba. Big hugs from all of us to you. <laughs> These two are the leaders of the World Revolution. They talk to each other in Teletubby language. <laughs> Shea lost the rifle in the swamp. Ah, <laughs> uh, Fidel spilt a rubble custard. <laughs> After nine months in the Congo, Shea was left with 20 soldiers and a goat that refused to give any milk. The final straw seems to have been the day that they headed back for their base camp. The comrades took three hours to get down a hill that should have taken ten minutes. I ordered them to leave everything that was superfluous and try to walk faster. Among the superfluous things they left was the key. And we had to send somebody back to look for it. Shea reluctantly gave up and went back to Cuba, but in 1967, he set off in an attempt at liberating somewhere else, this time deciding on Bolivia. First, though, he had to change his appearance again, so Dr Gutierrez went to see him and wrote later, I decided to change his height. I also decided to change his face, increasing the distance between the nose and the chin. I make his hair recede at the temples, took away his widow's peak and made prosthetic devices to make his teeth larger. The result was that no one suspected Shea was around, but all of Bolivia thought Michael Jackson had come to town. <laughs> Shea also had various aliases, which was probably just as well as he'd have felt stupid having his entire body rearranged if he'd then gone into the local bar and the doctor had come in and said, that's a good job I've done there, Shea. Oh! <laughs> 
So he became Tato, Ramon. Once he got to Bolivia, he was Mongo and Fernando. But most of his recruits couldn't manage his level of commitment. And in his diary, his summing up of one march through the jungle was... The march went well, except for the accident that cost Benjamin's life. <laughs> one particularly hungry day, they were forced to eat their horse. A day of belching, farting, vomiting and diarrhoea. A veritable organ concert. <laughs> It's the rugby player in him, see? <laughs> if he'd had a lighter, he'd have had a great time. <laughs> Throughout this time, he smuggled out documents, including, as the Viet Cong movement was becoming stronger, the one that became one of his most famous speeches. We need two, three, many Vietnams. Their most daring raid was in the town of Samipata, where after a gunfight, they took over the garrison. The strategic reason for capturing it was that they needed to go to the chemists because Shea had run out of inhalers. <laughs> Nevertheless, this was a propaganda victory until they got back into the jungle and realised they'd left the medicine back at the barracks. <laughs> he seems to have had a knack of surrounding himself with the most absent-minded soldiers in the world. <laughs> Sounds like half the time they must have been wandering up to army patrols carrying hand grenades going, now what did I come in here for? <laughs> Nonetheless, the official Bolivian army went to great lengths to crush the rebels, and on October the 8th, 1967, Shea's platoon was surrounded and attacked by mortar bombs near the town of Valagrendi. After a gunfight, Shea was captured, and he said to his captor, Don't shoot. I am Che Guevara. I'm worth more to you alive than dead. Now, this must have put the Bolivian soldier in a strange position, because there must have been a bit of him wanting to go, Blimey, are you really Che Guevara? <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you what, before I shoot you, I don't suppose you could sign this for me brother. <laughs> Shea was shot, and his hands were removed to be used as evidence that they'd got him. One of Shea's most prominent phrases was that... Strange as it may seem, it is impossible to be an effective revolutionary if you are not capable of the greatest love. And Shea clearly did love. When he left Cuba for the last time, he embraced Fidel in a moment which a guerrilla called Benigno described as... A deeply charged, emotional moment. Afterwards, Fidel sat by himself and drooped his head for a long time. Although, then again, it was just as well Fidel didn't make a farewell speech as 15 hours later, Shea would have gone, well, it don't matter now, I've missed the plane. <laughs> Shea's most wrenching experience, though, was after his farewell with Fidel. He visited his wife, Aleda, and his three-year-old daughter, but he couldn't reveal to his daughter that he was her father, as that would ruin all the security arrangements. Shea asked his daughter to give him a kiss and told her that he would be seeing her father and would pass it on. His daughter kissed him, ran to her mother and said, Mama, I think that old man is in love with me. Shea was someone with such a passion that he looked from his wheezing body up at the American military, the most powerful force that the world has ever known, and he thought, I can take you on. The Bolivian authorities certainly continued to fear him after his death, they falsified his death certificate to make it seem he was killed in battle, completing a journey that began when his parents had forged his birth certificate. The minute he was dead, his following became even more fervent than ever. The nuns in the hospital said he looked Christ-like. In Cuba itself, the image went up everywhere of Shea. Now you can buy any Shea knick-knack you like, including a Shea Guevara tea towel. Maradona has a Shea tattoo, so does Mike Tyson. Which I suppose makes sense, because iron discipline and rigid self-restraint have always been their most prominent qualities. <laughs> a film of Shay's life was made, starring Omar Sharif as Shay. 
which was so bad that when it was shown in Chile and Argentina, Molotov cocktails were thrown at the screen. <laughs> and the people throwing them probably went, it's what he would have wanted. <laughs> Mark Steele lecture was written and performed by Mark Steele with the help of Martin Heider and Carla Mendonca. The producer was Lucy Armitage.